So uh, take your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah, the sixth chapter, if you will. Isaiah chapter six. Uh, I'm not even going to try to pick up where um, Pastor J.D. is taking you through on Sunday mornings in Exodus, primarily because I'm not sure where you are, and I would probably um, blow it, and uh, <clears throat> he would have to come back and correct me anyway. So Isaiah chapter six. We are a nation in crisis. For several decades now, a tumor has been growing and it's been festering and it is finally metastasized. The crisis is not what we see happening around us morally or racially. It's not what we see happening socially or economically or even politically. These are all just symptoms. The crisis is spiritual. What we're seeing is a result of what happens when people reject the God of the Bible. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that when people don't honor God then God gives them up to the very things that they actually want. In Romans 1, beginning with verse 24, the Apostle Paul writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So what is the result of God giving people up to what they want? Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, 
inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I believe what we're seeing today is Romans chapter 1 being lived out before us. People today not only don't honor God, but they actually go out of their way to intentionally dishonor him. Therefore, as a means of judgment, God has given them up to the very things that they want. For the past several decades, we've witnessed this become a reality. The LGBTQ plus agenda has actually advanced to the point that today 67% of our country supports same-sex marriage. Surgery to accommodate even gender dysphoric adolescence is rapidly growing in popularity. Last month, a presidential candidate stated publicly that an eight-year-old should be able to decide if he or she is transgender. Since abortion was legalized in 1973, approximately 64 million preborn children have been murdered legally. And today, 48% of Americans would consider themselves to be pro-choice. But you say, but I thought the United States of America was a Christian nation. Well, according to Wheaton College's Institute for Studies of American Evangelicals, nearly 100 million Americans claim to be evangelical Christians. That's about one-third of the entire U.S. population. And yet when evangelicals are asked some very basic questions like, is God the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and does he still rule today? Or is eternal salvation possible only through grace and not works? Or, and did Jesus Christ live a sinless life on earth? When asked those questions, only about 24 million out of 100 million professing evangelicals say they believe that. This indicates that 76 million people claiming to be Christians are not even Christians. So the United States of America today is not a Christian nation. It is a mission field. Well, what does that have to do with Isaiah chapter 6? <laughs> well, as we work through Isaiah 6 this morning, we'll see that what it does is it provides us an important perspective for where we are today. Actually, it provides three essential perspectives that we need in times of national crisis. So what are they? First, in times of national crisis, we need the perspective of who is ruling. We need the perspective of who is ruling. The opening statement in verse 1 gives us the context for understanding this chapter. Isaiah states that what happened in the chapter occurred, notice, in the year 
that King Uzziah died. Now, Uzziah had been king in Judah for 52 years. And during, <clears throat> during that time, he had provided Judah a great deal of financial stability and military security. So under Uzziah, the people had actually become quite prosperous, and they felt secure. However, while they prospered, they had turned away from God and had become spiritually bankrupt. You see, their confidence had not been in God. It had been in Uzziah. Judah didn't know it yet, but they were facing severe judgment from God. At about 120 years from this point, Jerusalem would be destroyed and the people would be carried off to Babylon. Isaiah actually opens his prophecy in chapter 1 with God's indictment against the people. You might just turn back there for a moment. Listen in chapter 1 to how God points out the fundamental problem. The Lord says in verse 2, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, and it's implied here, me, my people do not understand. Notice, then God calls them a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. And what's the reason for this? God says they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. You see, while the people had become prosperous and felt protected under Uzziah, they had turned from God and they were spiritually dead. They had rebelled. So when Uzziah died, a sense of panic set in because the king in whom they trusted was gone. And it was in this context that Isaiah went to the temple in Jerusalem to seek God. And as he was there, Isaiah saw something that transformed his perspective and forever changed the trajectory of his life. Well, what was it? Isaiah was given a revelation of God himself. Listen, folks, nothing, nothing will change your perspective more than a right understanding of God. Now, there's two realities about God that changed Isaiah's perspective. The first was that God is the reigning king. Look again in chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This tells us three things about God. First, notice the sovereignty of the king. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. Now, Isaiah didn't see the Lord in his essence as God. John 1.8 says that no one has ever seen God. And Exodus 3, verse 33, verse 20 says, no man shall see me and live. However, when Isaiah went into the temple, God accommodated Isaiah's human limitations so that he was able to see what the Lord revealed of himself. So in this sense, Isaiah saw the Lord. The word Lord here is the Hebrew word Adonai. It refers to God as the sovereign ruler over all. So Isaiah saw the Lord as the sovereign king. 
That's why in verse 5, Isaiah says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is wonderful, that the King whom Isaiah saw was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the apostle John stated in John 12, 41, that Isaiah actually saw the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 12, 41, John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, referring to Jesus. So Isaiah Isaiah saw King Jesus, the sovereign king who rules. So basically in verse 1, he's saying, in the year that we lost our human king, I saw the sovereign king who is the Lord ruling over all. You see, Uzziah may have been dead, but the real king, the sovereign king, was very much alive. Let me ask you this question. Who is responsible for the outcome of elections? Is it the voters? Or is it the Lord? As the only absolute sovereign in the universe, the king of kings is responsible for setting up and taking down all earthly rulers. Daniel 2.21 states that the Lord removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 5.21 states that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Listen, do not lose sight of the one who is sovereign over the elections of men. Our confidence must be rooted in him and not in the men he appoints as earthly rulers. So there's the sovereignty of the king. Notice, secondly, there's the authority of the king. Isaiah said he saw the Lord, but where? Notice he was sitting upon a throne. Now the throne refers to the seat of authority, right? And so the one with the authority is the one who's on the throne, Psalm 47, 8 says, God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. You see, God's holy throne is supreme. His authority is over all. There's no power that's higher than the Lord. He has the authority and the power to do whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases But notice in Isaiah 6 where this throne is. Isaiah said it was high and lifted up. In other words, this throne wasn't on earth. This throne was in heaven. Folks, you need to understand that our security doesn't depend on who is in power here. It depends on who is ruling from his throne in heaven. Amen? Remember that even when the whole world seems to be falling apart, God is still on his throne. He has authority over nations and rulers and economies and viruses and sicknesses and even death. There's no need to be anxious when you know that God's on the throne. So Isaiah saw the sovereignty and the authority of the king. And then third, he saw the majesty of the king. So as the king sat on his throne in heaven, Isaiah noticed that the train of his robe filled the temple. This speaks of the king's majesty. In fact, in Psalm 104, verse 2, it says that God's robe is is like a light. He says, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself 
with light as with a garment. So Isaiah saw the Lord as the reigning king. And then as we come to verses 2 and 3, Isaiah tells us he saw a second reality about God. He saw that God is the holy Lord. He is the holy Lord. So he sees the Lord high and lifted up, but as his eyes continue looking upward, he saw something above the throne. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Now seraphim are a specific group of angels who were created by God to attend to God's holiness. The Hebrew word for seraph here means burning. So the appearance of these seraphim was a fiery, burning brilliance. And Isaiah said that they stood above the throne of God. Now as Isaiah writes about the seraphim, he focuses on three things. Notice the spectacular description of the seraphim. He describes them in verse 2 as having faces and having feet and having three different sets of wings. He said, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So these three sets of wings each had a specific purpose. The first set of wings covered their faces. Now remember, these are holy angels. So why would they need to cover their faces? Well, do you remember when Moses was walking in the desert and he saw a burning bush in Exodus 3? The voice came out of the bush and said this in verse 5, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is what? Holy ground. Why was that ground holy? It was holy because God's presence was there. And God, in his presence, sanctified the place where Moses, Moses was standing. So even though these are holy angels, they still need to cover their feet because they're in the very presence of God. So the two wings covered their feet. Then notice that two wings covered their faces. Now these angels are continually exposed to God and to the full radiance of his glory. And it's even more than what they, as holy angels, can bear. But notice the third set of wings. Two wings enabled them to fly. In other words, these wings just enabled them to sort of hover around the throne of God. And on some occasions, as we see in verse 6, they are able to be carried by these wings as they do the bidding of God. But the most incredible thing about the seraphim is not how they looked. It is what they said. Notice the glorious declaration from the seraphim in verse 3. As Isaiah saw these incredible creatures hovering above the throne of God, he actually recorded what they said. In verse 3, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. <clears throat> now when the seraphim call out, Holy, holy, holy to one another, they're emphasizing God's holiness. The word holy means unique. It means separate. It means distinct. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. But it's interesting, the seraphim don't just declare that the Lord is holy, do they? They declare he is holy, holy, holy. This threefold repetition of God's holiness 
emphasizes the dominance of God's holiness. You see, God is love, but his love is dominated by holiness. God is wise, but his wisdom is dominated by holiness. God is just, but his justice is dominated by holiness. God is good, but his goodness is dominated by holiness. You see, everything God does is absolutely holy because everything about God is absolutely holy. So the seraphim continually declare the perfection of God's holiness, but that's not all they declare. They also continually declare the perfection of God's glory. As they cry out, holy, 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 they also declare the whole earth is full of his glory. This literally, literally reads, the fullness of the earth is his glory. And when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the sum total of all of God's glorious attributes as God. We're talking about the sum of who he is. And God has fully displayed his glory in his creation. Psalm 19.1 states that the heavens, the heavens that God created declare his glory. And here the seraphim continually announce that God's creation not only in heaven, but on earth, declares his glory. So Isaiah Isaiah sees the seraphim. Isaiah hears from the seraphim. And in verse 4, Isaiah experiences the terrifying display caused by the seraphim. Look at this. Now what happens as the seraphim make their declaration about God? Verse 4 says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out, And the house was filled with smoke. So every time a seraph declared truth about God, the very foundations of the thresholds shook and smoke just filled the temple. This was glorious, but my friends, this was also terrifying. This is the perspective Isaiah was given. King Uzziah may have been dead, But the sovereign king who possesses all authority and all majesty and all glory was very much alive and he was ruling creation. This is the perspective we need. Where's your confidence? Is it in mortal men? Or is your confidence in the king of glory? Well, as we come to verse 5, we see a second perspective we need in times of national crisis. We need... Secondly, the perspective of the ultimate problem. You see, after Isaiah was given the perspective of who was ruling from heaven, he was forced to come to terms with the ultimate problem on earth. What's the problem? The problem, my friends, is sin. First notice, there's the problem of our own sin before a holy God. Isaiah was so overwhelmed with the glory of God's infinite holiness that all he could do was to pronounce a curse on himself. He says in verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. See, when Isaiah saw God as he was, he saw himself. For who he truly was. 
The word woe is a cry of despair. It indicates that in light of who God is, Isaiah understood that what he deserved was God's holy judgment. Isaiah said, I'm lost, meaning I'm destroyed. I'm coming apart. I'm totally ruined. Why? What's your problem, Isaiah? Why are you so so distraught? He said, for I am a man of unclean lips. See, Isaiah wasn't saying my problem's my mouth. Isaiah understood that what comes out of a person's mouth actually reflects the condition of his heart. And standing in the presence of God's holiness, Isaiah understood just how completely unholy he was. Now listen, compared to everyone else, Isaiah was actually a pretty good guy. He was seeking to follow God. He was seeking to worship God and obey God. But here's the deal. Isaiah was not measuring his life against other people's. He was seeing himself in light of the brilliance of God's perfect standard of holiness. You see, I'm not the standard. You're not the standard. God is the standard. You know, I think if you were to ask the typical church attender today, what's the ultimate issue in your life, you might hear a lot of things. You might hear things like, well, my problem is really I just have low self-esteem. My problem is that I have a a, a poor self-image. Maybe my problem is I'm just always misunderstood by others. But how many would say the ultimate issue in my life is my sin? See, the problem is not what's going on around me. The problem is what is happening in me, what is going on in my heart. See, when we lose sight of the holiness of God, we become arrogant. We become very self-absorbed and self-sufficient and self-serving. We end up presuming upon God's grace. We live as we please. We end up looking for security and satisfaction in the things that this world has to offer. And we take pleasure in the very things that God hates. Dear Christian, we need to set our gaze on God and come to terms with our sin and be broken over our sin and repent of our sin. J.I. Packer said this, We never know what sin really is till we have learned to think of it in terms of God and to measure it not by human standards, but by the yardstick of his total demand on our lives. See, seeing God as he is causes us to see ourselves as we are. In Luke chapter 5, this happened to Peter. Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, saying to him, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. After the apostle John saw the glorified Son of God on the island of Patmos, he wrote in Revelation 1.17 that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When Job got a vision of God, he said in Job 42, verses 
5 and 6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Listen, do you know where change in our nation begins? It doesn't begin at the top. It begins right here with me and you. God told Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So there's the problem of our own sin before a holy God, but secondly, notice there's the problem of our world's sin before a holy God. You see, Isaiah understood the problem because he said, not only am I a man of unclean lips, but in verse 5 he said, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, a right view of God not only amplified Isaiah's sin, but it exposed the fundamental problem of sin in Israel. See, Isaiah understood the problem was not political, it was not social, it was not financial, it was spiritual. The hearts of the people in the land were spiritually unclean, they were sinful. Look at the issues in our country. Pornography, abortion, racism, sexual immorality. Do you know what's at the heart of all of these things? It's sin. It's sin. These are the things that come out of depraved hearts. And how did Isaiah come to see that the problem is in Israel was spiritual? It was because of seeing the true king on his throne. At the end of verse 5, he said, For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. You see, when Isaiah saw the Lord as he truly is, he understood that the fundamental problem in the world is spiritual. This is what a right perspective of God does. When we are confronted with the reality of who God is, then we will understand the fundamental problem in the world is sin. And once we understand the problem... We are then at a place to receive God's solution. This leads us to the third and final perspective that we see in verses 6 through 13. In times of national crisis, we need the perspective of God's solution. So Isaiah has just seen this incredible vision of God and the glory of his absolute holiness, and it brought Isaiah to his knees. The problem was sin, and Isaiah broken over it. He was shattered. But what God did next is absolutely staggering. Rather than just taking Isaiah out, God extended mercy and he provided Isaiah with what he most needed, which was forgiveness. Notice in verse, verses 6 and 7 that God forgives those who are broken over their sin. You see, Isaiah was just devastated over his sin. And while judgment is what Isaiah knew that he deserved, mercy, mercy is what he received. 
Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now to demonstrate his mercy, God dispatched one of the seraphim to do for Isaiah what Isaiah could not do for himself. Look at verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. So the seraph flew toward Isaiah with a pair of tongs that was holding a burning coal that he had taken off of the altar. Now this is important because the altar was where atoning sacrifices were to be made, right? So this coal is a picture of a sacrifice. And as the burning coal touched Isaiah's mouth, the seraph said in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In other words, the angel is saying, Isaiah, you are no longer under a curse because God has taken care of your sin. You're forgiven. What was it that removed his sin? It wasn't the burning coal. The burning coal didn't atone for his sin. The coal represented the fact symbolically that there one day would be a sufficient sacrifice made on Isaiah's behalf. You see, because God is holy, he can't just overlook sin. For him to forgive sin, there has to be, there must be an acceptable sacrifice. And do you know what that acceptable sacrifice is? It is the sacrifice made by the holy king himself. Later, Isaiah wrote of the sacrifice of the Son of God, and he wrote of it as if it had already happened. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, just listen to this. It refers to Jesus. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, it was on the basis of the future sacrifice of the king himself that Isaiah was able to be forgiven. And it's on the basis of the past sacrifice of the king that you and I are able to be forgiven. Do you know what it takes to get to the point where your guilt is taken away? It takes being broken. It takes being contrite in the heart, in the face of the holiness of God. And Isaiah was there. God forgives those who are broken over their sin. But what about everyone else? What what about all the others who were unclean in the land? Well, in verses 8 through 13, we see that God uses those who are forgiven to call sinners to repent. 
God uses those who are forgiven to call sinners to repent. See, Isaiah is right where he needs to be. His heart's now clean. And then Isaiah hears the Lord expressing his heart for the people in verse 8. And he says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And when Isaiah heard that, he immediately responded. Then I said, here am I, send me. You, Isaiah, you got a dirty heart and it's reflected in your dirty mouth and you live with people who have unclean hearts. You, I've been cleansed. I deserve judgment, but I've been cleansed. My sin has been atoned for. So I'll go. If that's what you want, Lord, I'll go. And so notice God's commission to Isaiah in verses 9 and 10. This is the Lord speaking, and he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and their and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, here's what God's saying. Isaiah, I'll send you. But you need to know this. The people to whom I send you are not going to listen to you. They're not going to respond to your message. In fact, they will reject it. Your message will actually cause them to have dull hearts, will cause them to have heavy ears, will cause them to have closed eyes. Well, what was the message that Isaiah was sent with? It was a message announcing God's judgment and at the same time calling Israel to repent because of God's mercy. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, after declaring judgment, Isaiah offered the people hope in verses 16 through 20, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Then God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Just a comment on that. Some, sometimes people get confused. When you had a garment that was a cotton or a wool garment and you dyed it red, there was no going back. You, you could wash and wash and wash, but you couldn't get the red dye out. You could maybe fade it to a faded pink, but the stain was always there. God said, you come to me, you'll be white as snow, evidence of no stain. You'll be like wool, no evidence of stain. And then he says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, how long was Isaiah to keep giving this message? Look again in chapter 6, verses 11 and 13. Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, How long, O Lord, 
I mean, I'm willing to go. How long do you want me to do this? To keep giving this message that they won't respond to. He said, God said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, Isaiah was told to keep offering people the hope of God's mercy in light of his judgment until there's no people left. But why would God want Isaiah to proclaim that message to a world that's going to reject it? It was because while most people reject it, most people would reject it, there would be a few. There would be a remnant of people who would respond. Look at verse 13. God says, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is kind of confusing, but the tree is Israel. God says when the tree is hacked down in judgment, its stump is going to remain there. And then God says the holy seed, that is the remnant who believe, is that stump. So yes, most are going to reject it, Isaiah, but there's going to be few who are going to respond. See, folks, we are to take the message, God's message of hope to a world, and while most are going to reject it, not everyone will. I'm looking at some people who have received that message, and there's many more. I know that many of you are deeply concerned about our nation and that you desperately want to see things change. But where's your heart, hope? Is your hope in God? Or is your hope in the system? I think one of the failures among Christians throughout the past 50 years has been this flawed assumption that the means of reclaiming a culture is political. But political conservatism without Jesus Christ, folks, is just another one of man's attempts to try to bypass God to bring about superficial change at best. However, it will not transform one person's heart. It will not alter one person's eternity. And it will not change one person's standing before God. The fact is God never never intended for the solution to be political. It's always been, and it will always be spiritual. God is on his throne. God is on his throne. And he's reigning in perfect righteousness. You want to do something that makes a difference in this community? Something that will have an eternal impact? Reorient your perspective and focus on who is reigning. Focus on who is reigning. Second, come to terms with your own sin and your own spiritual indifference and repent. And then, thirdly, take the gospel to others and share with them the truth that they need to hear. I got to tell you, I think this is a great time to be alive. I'm so excited. Jesus is building his church, and he's given us a mission to accomplish. Let's fix our gaze upward. Let's press forward and make the most of every opportunity 
to impact our world for Christ now. I think about this body of believers and what God is going to do with you in this place. Do you know what? You have more potential to change an entire community than any representative or mayor or governor or president that's ever been elected because you have the truth and God operates through the truth to change people's hearts. The Lord is on his throne. Let's go. Here am I. Send me. Lord, thank you for this perspective today. Thank you for giving us hope that you're not wringing your hands, wondering what in the world is going to happen, that you are the God over history, the present, and the future. May you use us as we come to terms with who you are, deal with our sin, and seek to take the truth of the gospel to a world that's in need. Be glorified in your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen.